Live from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we are learning together how to walk in the age of fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Last week, we talked about sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ, growing from glory to glory. That's what scripture says. In this life, as we're here, as we exchange the things of our flesh here for the things of the spirit coming from there. And there's this exchange going on uh, within us and outside of us. And we talked about how the sanctification process will culminate in our ultimate destination at death. Uh, When we really think about it, sons and daughters are banking an awful lot on the idea that there is an afterlife. We don't know it. We believe it. We have faith that there is. That... Suffering here is worthy for what will happen there and that we're not just being taken for a ride by ancient scripture and cultures of the children of Israel, that there is purpose in that written book. Most people along the way, they allow themselves every now and then, I know I have, to wonder, is this really worth it? Is this gamble that that we're sort of making that the lives we live here are going to be beneficial to us there, that it's worth being a Christian now. Uh, and, and we have to decide if we really believe that there is a reward for living selfless lives now for the promise of something better beyond. And so many choose to discount that idea altogether. And they say, I'm going to live it up now. I'm going to party like it's 1999 and uh, do what I want. That's the the old catchphrase for all of Satanism. Do what thou will. And believing that they'll say things like, if God is good, he's going to know my heart and my goodness. And he's going to accept me as I am. So there's really no reason to live a certain way here and rein in my appetites, let alone give time on Sunday or or in Scripture during the week to try to seek Him. So I want to encourage all sons and daughters of God through some observations tonight that are aimed at helping you see the reason, the value of betting on what may be Uh, rather than living for what now is. Placing your bets on what may be, and I have to say what may be, that we believe by faith will be, not not what absolutely is, because we really don't know, versus living for what is. And that's, that's really a tough decision when you think about it, if you give it a lot of thought. The first observation is based on human reason alone, my human reason for whatever it's worth, But as mentioned, some believers, some people believe that this is all there is right now. So live it up like there's no tomorrow. This is the distinct message, if you're observant, that Hollywood gives us, movies give us. I mean, it's in almost every movie to kind of make choices that are going to be for your life selfishly now for the present because you There's no tomorrow, and life is short and all that. 
It's in the music industry like mad. It's in romance novels through the roof and the like. I was thinking as I wrote this, even Kenny Rogers. Now, a lot of you guys aren't going to know who that is, but he just died. He's a country uh, singer, very uh, noted country singer. And you think country music, well, if you know it, you know it's not uh, great morally. But his song, he says, we've got tonight, who needs tomorrow? We've got tonight, babe, why don't you stay? That's the idea behind living in this world. You know, I have an opportunity. My husband or my wife is out of town. Why not just have a night for myself, right? Live it up here because there's no tomorrow that I can count on. If there is a creator and if he's good and being good, he is going to hold us accountable. A good creator will do that. We would want a good creator who takes the life of our child to hold the person who takes the life of our child accountable if they didn't change and repent and everything, right? We want our creator to take people who are bad in this world and hold them accountable. Well, he's going to hold everybody accountable, bad and good. There will be an assessment. And if, th if there is a creator, the bet should probably swing the other direction away from we've got tonight, who needs tomorrow, uh, live for uh, right now, and who gives a darn about what may be later. And to focus on him and what comes next. And sons and daughters do that. They have taken their eyes off this world and they focus on him. I say that because this is the message in scripture. In what, what uh, Wendy calls Job, the book of Job, in Job chapter 20, verse 5, it says that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary. Job also wrote that life is wind in Job 7, 7. Isn't that true? Life is wind. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust is corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Meaning, if you've stored up treasures in heaven, your heart will be on heavenly things. If you store up treasures on earth, your heart will be on earthly things. Such great wisdom. John the Beloved wrote in 1 John 2.17, The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See the difference? Things on earth, temporal, meaning temporary of this earth. The things that are not seen, eternal. They go on forever. Finally, James and James 4.14 says, Whereas you know not where you shall be tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, the world takes that idea and it says, that's right. 
your life is just a vapor. It's going to vanish away. So live it up. And you know, you hear this attitude in people. I'm going to give it a gusto because this is all I've got, right? And they lose the meaning behind that. The meaning behind the scriptorians and the writers of scripture is this life is really short. Bet wisely. Choose wisely. Since this is certainly the case in the mindset of believers and life is fleeting, then disappears, the wise bet, the wise focus would naturally be on things which are spiritual, which are unseen, which are therefore heavenly, of him, eternal, rather than on the things uh, uh, he and his word warned against, treasures on earth, right? It's, it's not on that because those things are temporal. But what do the awaiting heavens offer us? Do we know? Do we have any idea what the awaiting heavens offer us? What's the real value of living lives for God through Christ by his Holy Spirit compared to the rewards of this world? How do they compare? And how are those rewards that are apparently waiting for us, the treasures in heaven, meted out to us? Do we know? Scripture doesn't promise us 70 virgins, male or female, or castles in the clouds. So I'm not going to suggest a state that cannot be validated by a reasonable understanding of the text. But I do want to show you, prove to you, what is actually on the table, or as the title of this show is, what actually hangs in the balance. What is hanging in the balance for every single human being on this earth? I am completely convinced of what hangs in the balance. So what I say to you, I believe with all my heart from Scripture, you may disagree with it, you may not understand it, you, you may agree with it, I don't know, but it's my view of what hangs in the balance supported by Scripture and not the uh, fanciful minds of men. Jesus said, In my Father's house... There are many mansions. Now, you have to stop and think about that phrase for a second. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Isn't that a strange phrase? You can use your imagination. You can, ma you can imagine God has an enormous house. And inside that house, there are many, many enormous mansions. Because mansions are big. Mansions are beautiful. Mansions are luxurious. Mansions are nice. So in the Father's house, if you want to think of it in material terms, you've got to think of an enormous house like the size of the state of, of, the, of the United States. And inside that house, there's a whole bunch of other houses. You can think of that, that are called mansions. Of course, right off the bat, this description has to be understood spiritually. So remove that imagination that I just said you should appeal to. Get rid of that because it's, it's spiritually based. In his father's house, in the habitational place of God, there are many mansions. So let's first ask, where or what is the habitation of God? Or what is God's house? John the Revelator tells us in Revelation chapter 21, 2 and 1, verse 2 and 1, 2 and 3, excuse me, he says, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself shall be with them and they will be their God. And then verse 5 says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. From this we know that the tabernacle of God is the new Jerusalem and it's a place where God sits on his throne. You do a study of that, you'll come to that conclusion. In my father's house, there are many mansions. In the habitation of God, which is the new Jerusalem where his throne is, there are many mansions. Now, Jerusalem could hold, could, uh, the old Jerusalem could hold a bunch of houses. So that's no, not so far-fetched. And you could uh, think of it literally, that in the new Jerusalem in heaven, there are a whole bunch of houses that are designed as mansions. I would suggest you got to look into scripture a little bit more. So, the new Jerusalem, which Luke says is above, it's not the Jerusalem here, is his father's house with many mansions. Because we live in flesh and we observe the world's mansions around us as places that hold and shelter our flesh, right? We tend to think of mansions as houses that we're going to get in the future. Just like if somebody gave you a, a, an award and said, we're giving you a brand new five-story, 4,000-square-foot home up in the foothills. And you go up there and you walk in the door and it's palatial and you think, man, that's what God's going to give me. But think of it this way. In Jesus' Father's house are many people. In Jesus' Father's house, there are many souls. And those souls will exist eternally in some sort of mansion. And there will be many types of these mansions in that new Jerusalem, which is the abode of the Father. And those mansions are resurrected bodies. So when Jesus said in my Father's house, there are many mansions, I believe that's what he's speaking uh, to. That in my Father's abode of the New Jerusalem, there'll be many places where souls will exist. You see, in a spiritual sense, you're not going to need a place with marble floors and, and, and copper fittings and air conditioning. You're going to live in a habitation of your own. And that's your resurrected body. So in my estimation, all things considered, this is what awaits everyone on earth resurrected mansions, so to speak, glorified spiritual homes that you and I will inhabit for eternity after we take our last breath. This is such a serious subject. That's why we titled this Hanging in the Balance. Because when everyone takes their breath, they're going to get that mansion awarded to them by God. And that's a serious thing because you're going to be living in that thing forever. While both remarkable and exciting, this news can be frightening and sobering at the same time. Jesus says in John 5, 29, And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of life damnation. 
Two types of resurrections going on there. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. So there will be two types. The word life in this passage is zoe in the Greek, and I think we can interpret that easily to mean eternal life. There will be a resurrection for a, a resurrected body given to people that allows them to have eternal life. And there will be a resurrection, krisis uh, is the Greek word for damnation there. And it means there will be a resurrection of judgment, a resurrection of condemnation. One where the mansion that the individual lives in will not be so equipped or elaborate in some spiritual sense. I have no idea. So there are going to be mansions of eternal life and mansions, resurrected bodies of condemnation. Since Jesus makes it plain in Luke 20, 38, that God is the God of the living, I think it's safe to say that resurrected beings who live in God's house or in his presence will be those who were resurrected to eternal life. And those with resurrected bodies of condemnation or judgment will not be in his presence, but they will, according to Revelation, abide outside of his presence. Now remember, in his house, he's the light of it. He and Jesus are the light of that new Jerusalem. So outside of it is darkness. And and I think I'm painting a picture here, biblically, of what every single person can expect. One, being resurrected, in some sense or another, and being resurrected with a body or a mansion that is going to experience life with God or life without God. That's what that seems to be hanging in the balance here. But again, in his father's house are many mansions, and I take this to mean many resurrected bodies, which will serve as eternal habitations in the city of God. Our hope as believers, our desire, and one of the reasons we endure this world while living for the next is the hopeful, that means the expected anticipation, the hopeful anticipation that God will bestow upon us at our death a body that is fitted for eternal life with him. That's the Christian hope. The non-Christian doesn't care. They don't care about God here. I don't think they're going to care about God there. And they'll be suited with a mansion that is fitted for eternal absence from God. This is what hangs in the balance. In my estimation, the bodies we receive are the crowns Christians get. They are the rewards Christians get. And and they are the glory. And they will be the eternal habitation of God's sons and daughters. Who gives these bodies to us? 1 Corinthians 15, 38 Speaking of the resurrection says, but God giveth a body as it pleases him and to every seed his own body. That's talking about the resurrection. Hebrews eleven twenty five. do you know what it says? It says some of the people in the Old Testament, they suffered hoping for a better resurrection, meaning that there are better bodies to receive from God after this life and there are not as good bodies 
to receive from God after this life, if they were hoping for a better resurrection. It appears that the nobility and power and distinction of these bodies is based in their level of glory that each receives. Let me repeat that. It seems that the nobility of these mansion bodies is tied to the glory that they receive. Peter wrote to them then in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, talking about his return to them, you, the believers in that day, shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. I suggest he's talking about that resurrected body. Speaking of the resurrection, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about all sorts of different flesh, he says, There are also celestial bodies, meaning heavenly ones, and terrestrial bodies, meaning earthly ones. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory in the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, in its ability to shine. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, that means it is buried in corruption, he says, and it is raised in incorruption. You're going to die and this body you're in is going to be sown or buried and you're going to be raised in the resurrection in incorruption. He says it will be sown in dishonor. The body that goes in that grave will have dishonorable traits about it. Disease and sin and death and all that stuff. Tattoos. And it is raised in glory. Glory again. It is sown in weakness. You get sick. You you feel badly uh, a lot of the times. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. That's what goes in the grave. It is raised a spiritual body, very different body that goes in the grave that will be resurrected on high. When people say it's just like this flesh and all that, it's baloney. They don't understand Jesus' resurrection, which they apply to themselves. He says, Paul says, there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. That's what's hanging in the balance for you and I as believers, folks. It's what God is going to choose to give you as your habitation past this life. That's what the suffering's about. That's what the choices are about. It's what it's all about. And he will grant to his sons and daughters, one, bodies that are habituated to live with him. They can stand and behold his face in their, in their person. It, it's a body that you will have forever and will totally want because God has given it to you as a son or daughter, or it will be an eternal house that does not, cannot abide in the uh, presence of God. And so we as Christians, that is our hope and expectation. That's what hangs in the balance for us here. From these passages, we know that the resurrection is planted in dishonor. It's planted in pain. It's planted in weakness. It's planted in a natural body but it's raised in all these heavenly things. What many Christians don't realize 
is that as Christians, we are called to both his kingdom and to his glory. Did you know that? 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, Paul says that you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. You've been called to go and inherit glory there. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, Whereunto you he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were called to be a believer. You're called to be a son and daughter to, he says there, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer to the believers in that day found in Ephesians 1.8 was that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of glory in his inheritance to the saints. This is not lightweight stuff. It hangs in the balance. And we said last week, the glorification enters in here while we're alive, bit by bit, from one glory, small, barely discernible, to another. It's going and it's going and it's going to be ultimately fulfilled at the resurrection upon our death. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is forgotten or ignored, what is difficult for us to fully grasp, is the fact that the glory of the resurrection is tied by the apostles to the suffering that we endure here. And that's why we titled the presentation, What's hanging in the balance? It's, you might ask, I had a man ask me today, why do I have to suffer like this? And the answer is because there's something hanging in the balance. And the apostles made it clear that the glory of the resurrection is directly tied to such suffering. I don't know about you, but I want to serve God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And I anticipate... I expect to dwell with him once this life is over. That is my hopeful expectation. I hope to be given by God as it pleases him, a body that can dwell in his presence so I can behold his face uh, as I am assigned to do whatever you are assigned to do or live uh, however you're supposed to live after this life. But the price for this capacity, for this resurrection to life and glory for this mansion is suffering. It's suffering when I try to hold my tongue when I don't want to. It's suffering of dying to my own will. It's suffering when I have to control my body and what it wants to do. It's suffering um, of not being part of this world and all that it's about or of the ego or staying dead and in the grave with Christ. It's the suffering of acting in love when that is a painful, patient, long-suffering process. It's suffering when God is renewing the mind and when he's pruning you back. All of that is part of the flesh being mortified so the spirit can be glorified. 
Didn't mean to rhyme there. Scripture frequently ties Christian suffering to glory that will be bestowed upon those eternal mansions that are hanging in the balance. In the amazing chapter of Romans 8, Paul states, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's a straight up promise of suffering being attached to glory being revealed in those who go through it. And then in the same book, chapter 2, verse 6, Paul wrote that God will render to every person according to their deeds to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Paul writes, speaking of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, for which cause we faint not, but through our but though our outward person perish, yet our inward person is renewed day by day. And he adds, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a while, he adds, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Finally, Paul explains why he does what he does in 2 Timothy 2.10, saying, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. What hangs in the balance for every single person who has ever lived, every single person, but most pressing today is the people who are living now is the body God will grant you upon your death. That is, that's it. That's it. Because when it's, when it's given, it's given. And you receive it. I'm convinced that every soul, when they take their last breath, because Jesus completed everything, when they take their last breath on this earth, will be assessed by his all-knowing eye and rewarded mercifully, justly, rightly for the lives that we chose to live and the hearts we chose to create for ourselves. I have no idea what it looks like, how it happens, or what it will mean in the ages to come. But I do fully trust the Word of God and I encourage you, sons and daughters, to live with the eternal view in mind, to choose faith and love, and to fully anticipate that our loving Father will equip you with an eternal mansion worthy of His presence because of the things you suffered. Write your comments below and tune in with us tomorrow night here on Heart of the Matter as we read them and talk about them. Good night.